Strong start. <laughs> uh, hello and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 106, the real 106, Pope Benedict III, the actual pope that followed Pope Leo IV, not Pope Joan. This numbering is going to be so messed up. Yeah, well, we released Johannes and Pope Joan with no numbers, so it's all good. It was just a fake Except out. Except they're saved on my computer as 106 and 106B and 106C. <laughs> I know. Make sure you don't f- them up in the Dropbox. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I have made sure of that. That was just so you didn't catch on, you know? It was all, it was all a big, long-term bamboozle. Ah. <sighs> I'm so tired. I want you to appreciate how much work went into making sure you didn't pick up on the fact that it was Pope Joan. But we're we're finished with Pope Joan, and this is our first a real pope in a while, so we're going to do that. However, it is important to mention that in some editions of the Liber Pontificalis, Benedict is entirely missing, and some people have used that as some sort of evidence for Pope Joan for a cover-up conspiracy that maybe went a little too far. But in reality, Benedict's entry is missing in many versions for an entirely different reason that we will get to. And also, this is just going to be the norm for a while as well, because we're coming very, very close to the actual official end of a cohesive Liber Pontificalis. Like, we have less than 30 years to go with the Liber Pontificalis. And after that point, the most we're going to get are, like, snippets or an occasional biography when we're lucky. So we shouldn't take this as any sort of grand mystery. And all that being said, the edition that we've been using, the Lives of the Ninth Century Pontiffs by Raymond Davis, definitely does have the section on Benedict intact. So it does exist, it's just missing most of the time, and soon you will see why. Benedict was born in Rome, and his father was called Peter. And this in the Liber Pontificalis is usually where we get some flowery praise for the piety and learnedness of the man, and Benedict is no exception to that. But the phrasing is just so weird that I just had to include it for you. Quote, this blessed man, sprung from loving flesh and blood, was fortified with astral dew, and growing speedily in the study of divine letters, he was given over to his father's discretion to be trained. As a sponge quickly soaks in water, so he learned the lessons of the sacred volumes. He understood, grasped, and set the rudiments in the foundation of his mind and propagated them on unseen roots. I have a lot of questions. Astral dew. Astral dew from the springing flesh. And the unseen roots, I mean... The unseen roots, the sponge, the soaky sponge. (laughs) He's sponging up all of that sacred volume. (laughs) Uh, What is this? This is like... (laughs) 
priest crush gone to the next level. Anyways, <laughs> it then says that as a young cleric, he was becoming widespread celebrated. And so he was brought into the Lateran to work for the Pope as a subdeacon. Then, under Pope Leo IV, he was appointed as the Cardinal Priest of San Callisto. But, if the Liber Pontificalis is to be believed, it was not the easiest transition into ascetic life for Benedict, who it says, quote, entered upon many struggles in the holy life, for he overcame the flesh and the prince of the world and all his wicked arguments. So this is a little bit interesting. Since it's the first time we really see any mention of a personal struggle with asceticism, except for that whole Pope Gregory the Great throwing himself in thorn bushes when he felt a little bit horny. It also does seem that Benedict never truly saw himself as worthy of the standards of clerical life, and we're going to see that pop up again. He, he's not entirely without reason for this. Part of the feeling of unworthiness might have also been because on the death of Pope Leo IV, Benedict wasn't actually the first choice to be the successor. Initially, the church agreed on the cardinal priest of San Marco, a man called Hadrian, but he had outright refused and somehow managed to refuse all of the usual, you know, because usually they refuse and then they're dragged out and they're reluctantly brought to the Lateran and then they're made Pope and they all agree to this. But Hadrian was like, no, absolutely not. I will fight you. And he fought them. And so they left him alone. And if these accounts are true, then this means that this refusing Hadrian is the very same Hadrian who will become Pope Hadrian II in 867 after apparently refusing the papacy on two separate occasions. So this is just the first time that he said, no, absolutely not. He will say, no, absolutely not again. And then he'll have to relent and actually become Pope at some point. But when it became clear that Hadrian was not going to be moved into accepting the papacy at this point, the clergy reconvened to choose an alternative candidate. And this is when they chose Benedict. Now, he also refused the papacy, allegedly saying, I beg you not to take me away from my church because I am not capable of sustaining and bearing the load of so great a pinnacle. But after being rejected by Hadrian, the clergy is not prepared to take no for an answer this time. And so they do the usual dragging out and parading to the Lateran to seat him on the papal throne and then do what they do to send out envoys to Emperors Lothair and Louis II to obtain confirmation. However, something went terribly awry at this point. And along the way, the Missi, who had been sent to the Emperors, changed their loyalties. And when they came back with a confirmation, it was not for Benedict. Oh, they were entirely confirming someone else as Pope. And this means we have an anti-Pope situation. Anti-Pope. This is how you get anti-Popes. So, what happened exactly? 
The Liber Pontificalis lays the blame on Arsenius, the papal legate and bishop of Horta, who it says met with the Missi and, quote, buttered them with cunning words. Their hearts began to soften and they veered from their loyalty to the elected Blessed Benedict. With them, he endeavored to firm up a plot for them to adorn another with the badge of the pontificate, a man deposed and anathematized, something God's clemency would never tolerate. On the guidance of Arsenius, the Missi declare a new candidate, Anastasius Bibliothecarius, to be the Pope. Now, does this name ring a bell, Fry? Anastasius Biblicarius is the guy I was making fun of because I thought his name sounded like it ends with Thomas O'Malley, O'Malley the Alley Cat. <laughs> well, we've also talked about him in this podcast. Mm-hmm, and that's why I brought it up. He was the cardinal priest of St. Marcello that we discussed in Pope Leo IV's episode. And you might remember that he had been deposed and excommunicated in a synod of 853 due to disloyalty and disobedience to the Pope in favor of Emperor Louis II. And you might also remember that Anastasius had a fairly influential uncle. This is Arsenius, Bishop of Horta. So it all starts to come together. Why this might have gone awry. We have this excommunicated and deposed cardinal priest and his uncle going, hey, maybe I can manipulate the situation and make my nephew pope. And so these are the election results that they then bring to emperors Lothair and Louis II, saying, hey, it's actually my nephew who's been elected pope. What a strange coincidence. So when the envoys return to Rome... Pope Benedict, who is expecting to be informed of his confirmation, was arrested and imprisoned instead. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, surprise! This is not exactly how this is supposed to go. Yeah, we're, um, no. (laughs) And Anastasius was brought to the Lateran for consecration. What the hell? This man? No. You told me. You said... You said he was a bad man. A bad egg. And I'm going to give you a little taste of this because the Liber Pontificalis recounts this with scathing, exaggerated drama, making Anastasius out as a real villain. So here we go. With Caesar's envoys, this priest entered the Leonine city by force. And making little of God's will, he suddenly and boldly intruded into the Prince of the Apostles' Basilica, which he ought not to have entered. The extent and nature of the evil and hapless activities he carried out were such as even the Saracen horde had not presumed to carry out therein. He broke the images and burnt them with fire. He destroyed the painting of the synod which Pope Leo of blessed memory had made above the sanctuary doors, and with a hatchet he hurled down to the ground an icon of our Lord Jesus Christ and his ever-virgin mother. This he should not have done. At that detestable action, all the devotees of the Orthodox faith wept and groaned and were filled with sadness and sorrow. This done, the deposed priest entered Rome as an enemy, with his wicked followers swiftly made his way to the Lateran Patriarchate, 
and like a blood-stained tyrant, he opened its doors with worldly force and many kinds of weapons. And so entering by this door, he sat on the throne which his hands should not have even touched. He gave orders to eject Blessed Benedict, whom as ever we have related the whole Roman people had elected from the pontifical throne on which he sat. Like a barbarian, he took him and stripped him of his pontifical vestments he was wearing and sated him with many injuries and blows. Then the deposed Anastasius, acting for man, not God, endeavored to give this kind elected Benedict over to the guards who he would strictly confine them. He's personally stripping and beating our elected Pope man. Wow. He is an awful egg. Although it was likely not this bad or dramatic, this still did not go down well with the people of Rome, who railed and revolted loudly, even when threatened by imperial enforcers. They categorically refused to support Anastasius in any way, and insisted that the emperor recognize Benedict as the true and rightful pope. And so these Frankish envoys, realizing that they're not going to be able to be successful in pushing for Anastasius, have to relent and wrote to the emperors to try and undo their oopsie. This is so f- <laughs> It's so bad. It's so bad. And imagine how the emperors feel as they get this letter like, hey, we lied to you and got you to confirm the wrong pope and now Rome is in chaos. Please help us fix this. And the emperors have to, at this point, realizing that this is, this is terrible and even if they're going to lose face, they agreed to withdraw their confirmation of Anastasius and finally confirm Benedict as the true and rightfully elected pope. And by the time that that confirmation actually reaches Rome, Anastasius had been forced out of the Lateran and out of the city, and Benedict had been released from prison, and was then, when the confirmation arrived, paraded back to the Lateran amidst much celebration. Quote, Immediately Anastasius was cast out and expelled from the Patriarchate in much disgrace, so that all the devotees of the Orthodox faith fulfilled their manifold thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ. The bishops and all the clergy and people took and brought the elected one, Blessed Benedict, from the basilica in which the clerics were staying, the same place where the savage Anastasius had put him under guard. With every enthusiasm and rejoicing, they went down with him into the Savior's basilica, called Constantinian. So, after all that hubbub, Benedict was finally consecrated on September 29th, 855, which ironically happened to be the same day that Emperor Lothair died. Okay. But unlike various other popes who have dealt with an anti-pope, Benedict wasn't about to have Anastasius executed or locked away in a monastery as revenge for his anti-papacy. A synod was convened to condemn Anastasius for his actions and formally depose him from any thoughts on the papacy, but he was not reconfirmed as excommunicated as a lay person, which he had been before under Leo IV. 
And this means that Anastasius is actually able to return to papal favor after Benedict's death and will have a very, very prolific career, including being one of the potential authors for the Liber Pontificalis. And this, by the way, is the most commonly believed reason that Benedict III is missing from some of the editions, since it doesn't cover Anastasius in a flattering light at all. So it's very likely that if he became one of the authors later on, that he might have just removed that section. <laughs> he didn't want to deal with that embarrassment. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be covering all of Anastasius's life on Patreon in his Antipope episode. Because, oh my god, there is so much more. Be prepared for that. When we say he's a bad egg, we've only, like, scratched the surface so far. He's already been, like, deposed and excommunicated twice here. He's but... the stinkiest egg. <laughs> he is the stinkiest egg. And he may be one of our greatest sources at the same time. And not to beat on a dead horse here, but this whole situation is yet another reason why we know that Pope Joan didn't exist in this time. Because clearly there isn't a lack of sources, right? We have a documented election of a first candidate and his rejection. We have a documented election for Benedict and a documented antipope in this time period. And then we have a documented date of consecration for Benedict and sources noting the coincidence that it falls on the same day that Lothair died, which is also well documented. And then there are several accounts in other sources of Pope Benedict issuing charters only days after his consecration and receiving petitions. So again, unless sources across the whole of the empire are all collaborating to document false information and false dates, there's no Pope Joan up in here. Keep that in mind. We covered that already. Yeah, there's just a bunch of fakeness happening there. So, fakety fake fake. So now that Benedict is actually the elected, confirmed, and consecrated pope, he immediately had to contend with the people who messed this all up in the first place, right? These are the Franks. And this was because the Frankish kingdoms were a whole ball of instability. Surprising no one. Now, as we said, the pope was consecrated on the same day that Emperor Lothair had died. And now there was, as per usual with these Carolingian boys, a fight for power. And as has been done before, Lothair had divided his holdings in Francia among his sons. Lothair II, Louis II, and Charles in the Treaty of Prune. They have not learned that when you have a territory, dividing it up amongst your sons is a bad idea because they'll just fight each other. It's just really, really dumb. Now, Louis II, we've already mentioned, as he was crowned joint emperor with Lothair in our last episode, and he also held the title of King of Italy. Lothair II was made King of Lotharingia, which is a region that was made up of sort of Middle-ish, Middle Francia, in what today would be Central Germany and Lorraine. And Charles was made King of Provence, although it needs to be said that at the time of Lothair's death, Charles was only 10 years old, and so certainly not 
ruling in his own right. And what's more, he died at age 18, and his territory will be disputed, adding further conflict and instability later on. And let's not forget that the now-dead Lothair I's brothers, Charles the Bald and Louis the German, are still ruling in their own kingdoms. So this is a lot of cooks in the kitchen, especially when they're not on best terms with one another. We now have, like, six rulers in Francia. But it was more than just infighting, because Aquitaine is repeatedly revolting against Charles the Bald, and Louis the German was desperately attempting to fend off the Slavs, and the Normans were attacking the North, and the Saracens are attacking the South. So this is like a huge ball of mess over the Franks are not having a good time. And if that wasn't enough, the churches were most definitely facing the brunt of the instability, and Frankish churches are just being plundered on the regular by their own kings. Whether it was for aggrandizement or to fund defense, kings are literally just raiding their own churches. Quoting from historian Horace K. Mann, There is scarcely a council held among the Franks at this period which does not protest the seizing of church property. And much of what they did not rob, they did worse. They gave to their utterly worthless relations. Churches are being emptied, and nepotism is on a sharp increase. This is a bad time for the Frankish churches. And Pope Benedict was not thrilled about this at all. He's not thrilled about any of this. Let's not forget, if the empire is unstable, their ability to come to the protection and aid of the papal states is practically nothing. And if everything is unstable, the emperor might not have his head screwed on tightly enough not to mess up a papal election, as we've seen. So someone needs to be taken to task for all of this mess. But it seems that Benedict didn't really want to try his luck chastising the emperor and the kings after his recent imprisonment. So he decides to turn his agitation slightly off-center. And instead, he comes down hard on the bishops across the Frankish kingdoms for not speaking out against the chaos and not guiding their kings towards unity and stability. This letter that he writes to the Frankish kings, although we don't have it to quote from, was apparently extremely harsh. And according to Horace K. Mann, he calls the bishops dumb dogs at one point. He's so angry, and he has to direct this somewhere. I mean... Dumb dogs. I mean, he'd literally just been thrown in prison when he should have just been consecrated as When pope. he should have been pope. Like, I would be pissed off at these people, too. He's having a really hard time. Surprised he didn't fire them all. I don't think he can fire them all, but he really should. There should be a, like, you're fired, get the f*** out of my face. I mean, technically... He's the only person who should be able to fire them all. Yeah, but I feel like you can't... They didn't do anything bad enough for him to fire them. They're just incompetent. A bunch of idiots. And in reality, if he had tried, it would have just made the kings and emperors more angry, and they would have had more schism and more fighting, and it wouldn't have helped his cause at all. But he really, yeah, I, I feel like firing them... 
he he was in all of his right to do so. Yeah, he's really. They're acting like some dumb dogs. <laughs> but the bishops are quite taken aback by this aggressive dressing down from the Pope. I'm sorry. What? What? They deserve it. They are shocked. And that- he is very nice about it. All he called him them was dumb dogs. He's not even using real swear words. <laughs> he could call them a whole lot of things. He could. He could. But they're like, hey, it's not our fault that the kings are being a mess. And we see this in a letter that the bishops of Provence then wrote to their king. So they got this nasty letter from the Pope. And they're like, whoa, this is not our fault. So they write to the king and they say, we should have felt keenly the reproofs which the Pope addresses to us in the letter, which we have heard together with you. If we had really done what, with so much vehemence, he lays to our charge. But as we have never given our consent to the disorder concerning which he is most insistent, nay, as on the contrary, we have often raised our voices against it, we have often warned you and your subjects by our words and writings to correct what has been done against the canons. We are less affected by his reproaches. Nevertheless, once again, we join our voices to that of the Pope and exhort you to reestablish, as soon as may be, order in the monasteries of your kingdom, which are in deplorable condition, and cause to be observed the capitularies to which you have affixed your seal. So, while Benedict's critique didn't bring an end to the instability, it is at least galling the bishops into being more vocal with their king. So the thing they should have been doing in the first place, they try to sort of skirt the blame quite a lot in this in this letter, but they're like, hey, this blame should be on you, King Charles, and now we're gonna yell at you because we got yelled at by the Pope. Let's just punch in different directions for a while. And in October of 856, a tentative compromise between the brothers was reached. And in the Liber Pontificalis footnotes, Raymond Davis suggests Benedict claimed credit for this tentative peace agreement after yelling at the Frankish bishops. So, maybe a little bit of success. A little bit. Maybe they won't do this again. Maybe. But it's, it's the Franks, so they will. They got hot dogs for brains. <laughs> Let's see what Battle Royale has to say about that. <laughs> it's just parts... Ground up parts for the brain. Hot dog brains for our Frenchmen. (laughs) But that was not the end of Benedict's issues with the Franks, as he also had a pretty serious issue with King Lothair's brother-in-law, Hubert, the brother of Lothair's wife, Tuberga. We're going to come back to Tuberga quite a lot, but for right now... Tuberga? Like a... With a T? T H E U T Burger. Two Burger. Toot Burger. Toot Burger. Toot Burger. However, you want to say it. We, we will have so much time to debate how we say her name, and I will probably say it several ways because every time I typed it, it was definitely Toot Burger, and that's not how you say it. So, anyways, she is not so much the problem right now. It is her brother, Hubert. And Hubert, or Hubert, is a problem. You see, 
He was a subdeacon in the church, but due to his sister's royal marriage, he also possessed a duchy and a massively inflated ego. And he had a reputation for being a bad man who basically rolled with gangs. More bad eggs. <laughs> More bad eggs. We're, we're entering a period with a lot of bad eggs. He decides to take the plundering of the churches to the next level. He was literally known for seizing properties of the church, including the famous monastery of St. Maurice, looting all the wealth, and then spending it on, quote, harlots, dogs, and birds, or defiling church sites by living there with, quote, easy women. Ah, harlots, dogs, and birds. Which feels like the new gypsies, tramps, and thieves, but, you know. It's likely that he thought that being the brother of the queen and brother-in-law of the king would exempt him from any reprisal for his actions, since all of the Frankish nobility were getting away with similar church robbery, as we've said. But the Pope is absolutely horrified when he is informed about Hubert, and wrote to the bishops demanding that Hubert appear in Rome under pain of excommunication to answer for his misdeeds. Unfortunately, whether or not he came, or if the proceedings were made against him, all sort of gets lost in the rest of what this family is famous for. And the Catholic Encyclopedia says he, quote, defied the laws of God and man till he was slain in 864. So likely whatever was decided by the Pope didn't come to much. But like I said, we will be coming back to Lothair II, his wife Tuberger, and potentially Hubert in our next episode. So pair for that one. Benedict also had some brief contact with Constantinople as well, regarding none other than the iconoclasm again. But this time, not in the way you would think. You see, the current patriarch of Constantinople, Ignatius, who happened to be the forcibly castrated son of a previous emperor. Oh, poor baby. Yeah, it happened a lot. If an emperor was, was, you know, deposed or overthrown, their sons would often be forcibly castrated and just put into the church. So the patriarch, Ignatius, was contending with the issue of how to deal with clerics that had participated in or tolerated iconoclasm, and this had led to the deposition of the Archbishop of Syracuse, Gregory, who opposed Ignatius and wanted a more moderate approach right? Do we punish all these people and kick them out of the church? Or do we just sort of reconcile and accept that iconoclasm isn't a thing anymore? And in this matter, both Gregory and Ignatius wrote to the Pope, searching for the right of the issue. And this had happened in our last papacy. So the Pope who had received these letters initially was Pope Leo IV. And Pope Leo had announced that he would hear the case so Gregory and Ignatius should come to Rome or send envoys on their behalf. And when the envoys arrive, of course, Pope Leo IV is dead, and Benedict is the one who gets to hear the case instead. In the end, Benedict did not confirm the deposition and actually supported Gregory, which really irritated the patriarch Ignatius. No surprise there. But he was deposed shortly after, so there is no retribution. 
Now, just wrapping up with a couple other things, there was also a flood during Benedict's papacy, described in detail in the Liber Pontificalis. In the fifth month after this distinguished pontiff's consecration, the Tiber left its channel and spread over the plains. It swelled in great spate and entered the city of Rome by the postum gate called St. Agatha's. Meanwhile, in some places, it even lapped over and entered the Church of St. Sylvester, which go up to St. Dionysus's basilicas, none except the topmost was visible because of the flooding. From there, it expanded over the street called Violata and entered God's mother, St. Mary's basilica there, and the water swelled so much that this church's doors could not even be seen because of the flooding. Then it went up the streets and byways as far as the Clevis Argentarius. From there, it turned a right angle and entered by the portico in front of St. Mark's. And then it made a rush and began to run down into the sewer close to the monastery of St. Sylvester and of St. Lawrence the Martyrs called Palacinus. From that day and thereafter, the water gradually began to diminish, and after doing much damage, the river returned to its channel. It overturned houses, desolated fields, sweeping crops away, and uprooting trees. So, I looked into this, and I checked a source that we've consulted before for the flood in Pope Gregory II's papacy, Floods of the Tiber in Ancient Rome, by Gregory S. Aldrete. And he says that this flood was likely just as deep and destructive as that one had been in Gregory's episode. Oh, that was bad. Yeah, it was described as one and a half times a man's height or eight feet. Very tall. Yeah, so this is a fairly devastating flood. And although it's not mentioned, we can assume that Pope Benedict had to spend a fair bit of time working on restoration. And one of the restorations he actually is notable for is for having restored the Scola Anglorum, or Saxonum, which had been destroyed by fire during the last papacy. We discussed the Scola when it was founded in the papacy of Pope Gregory II by Ina, the king of Wessex, who abdicated his throne and came to Rome to serve the church. There is actually some notable restoration effort, but we can assume that given what happened, he was actually much, much busier with much, much more. And then Pope Benedict III died on April 17th of 858 and was buried in the narthex, which is apparently a word for the covered portico entry area of St. Peter's. So it's sort of like before the doors of St. Peter's, that sort of portico-share open space. But his tomb was, of course, destroyed in the building of New St. Peter's. However, his epitaph has survived. You who hasten hither, begging Christ for pardon, I pray you learn how this place is worthy of tears. Lo, this cold and quiet place encloses the limbs of the prelate Benedict III, which the earth gave him. He felt he was unworthy to be in the company of the godly, although the roof of St. Peter's preserves his doors beneath a covering of stone. So that's Benedict III, it's been a little bit of a wild ride. Are you ready to rate him? Yeah, let's, um, let's go for it. You know what's super cool? I didn't even open my scores window. Here we go. Amazing. <laughs> Papatum infallium. Very little to go on here. He blamed the Frankish bishops for the instability of the Frankish kingdoms, but this didn't stop the situation from being unstable, nor did it stop the plundering of the churches. The only thing 
we might give him credit for is not supporting the deposition of Gregory of Syracuse. There's that. And because we have little to go on here, I am including this account from Bartolomeo Platina of him ordaining clerical behavior and setting an example. Quote, He ordained that the Pope and clergy should accompany the funerals of bishops, priests, and deacons, as well as to honor their corpse as to pray for their souls, and that the clergy should in like manner attend the funeral of popes. And what he had thus ordained, himself observed punctually as long as he lived, for he was always present at the burials of the priest. He was a frequent visitor of the sick, a nursing father to the poor, a comforter of the miserable and hopeless, and a zealous patron of the widow and fatherless. This is very nice words from Platina, who is normally very salty and quite critical of popes. So at least maybe we can give him credit for setting an example, walking the walk. I feel like I want to give him a two. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like he, like he was walking the walk, and I also feel really bad that he ended up in jail. Maybe that's something else that's a good example of walking the walk, is he was very, very kind to Anastasius. Anastasius ended up in a better situation than he was when he started this, because Benedict was forgiving. Mm-hmm. You wanted him deposed as, as a cleric, per se, but say, no, you can't be Pope, but he didn't excommunicate him as a layman. So yeah, he's definitely walking the walk. I will match your two, and he will get a four in this category. Fructus prohibitum. Uh, Not much. The scandal is all around him, but it is not him. He didn't do it. We could argue that he struggled with asceticism early in his career, but, I mean, giving up normal life for church life would be difficult. One scandal point for writing a bunch of... Strongly worded letters. <laughs> For calling the bishops dumb dogs? All right. I'll give, I'll let, I'll let him have that one. Single one. Seculari impactum. So this is interesting because the support of the people of Rome was so intense for Benedict that they demanded that the Frankish emperor undo the mistake. Although this isn't an action of his, This moment is often credited by historians as a major moment where Rome becomes disillusioned with the Franks and begins to resist their influence. Okay, that's a very important shift, like, mentally. Huge! After this point, imperial confirmation is not going to hold near as much weight. We're, We're entering a similar period of, like, late empire and papacy, like what we saw with the Byzantine papacy where they don't see this as as necessary anymore. The Franks really screwed up. And so they're like, look, we don't need to be beholden to this as much anymore. And the Pope had to sanction the bishops over the instability in the Frankish kingdoms rather than writing to chastise the kings. So this might work against him a little bit. Although it's not explicitly stated, this somewhat feels like he was afraid to do so. But since his papacy had started on shaky footing, thanks to the Franks, maybe he didn't just want to rock that boat. Yeah, okay. I'm willing to give him a three in this case. Okay. I think that that's, that mental shift is a big one. And although he didn't 
do something specific to cause it. It is happening in his papacy. So I think I'm going to bump it up to a four and he'll get a seven in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. I am going to send you two versions pretty much back to back because they are both of the St. Paul's Outside the Walls version. But the original is a very, very unimpressed man. I'm so ready for whatever this is. And in the restoration version, they've clearly tried to make him look a lot more friendly. <laughs> so um, it's, it's one of the more intrusive restorations I have seen. So here is an unimpressed man, and here is a much friendlier man. <laughs> All right, the first guy, he doesn't look unimpressed. He just... He's mad about it. Look, they even made him smile in the second one. This is definitely some painter's version of uh, you don't smile at, like, why don't you smile for us? Also, I need to point out that he looks to me a lot like Constantine from Killing Eve, like, so much. Oh, boy. Especially the first one. Yes. Uh, oh, my gosh. Do you see it? <laughs> He's in charge of us. It's... Small assassin lady. Doing that that weird laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that's him. I I it's not bad. I am amused by both versions. Villanelle is the one that put him in prison. <laughs> she would she would be on par with someone like Anastasia's Bibli bibliothecarius. She would have bamboozled somebody somewhere, and it would have caused a chain of events, and that is how he ended up in prison. Oh, 100%. That seems very accurate. <laughs> so what do we want to give these images before I send you the other ones? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, he does not look like a man that I, I would not approach on the street. Um, <laughs> he, I'll give him, like, a five. Okay. I, I'm I'm bumping it up. It's an eight for me because of the resemblance to Constantine. And he was <laughs> he was my one of my favorite characters in that show. So he will get a a 13, which gives him when divided out a 3.25. But I have some more images to look for you to look at. And they all too feel like variations of the same. Okay. But not the same as the ones I've just sent you. Just variations. These three are variations of each other. So here you go. A Jafif! Oh. Oh, it's a Jafif! Oh. oh, Lord. <laughs> that one is, like, very heavily shadowed. Oof. Oof. All of these are awful. They look like <laughs> villains from a Disney cartoon. Yeah, they really do. Especially the last one. It's... Very angular. So angular. There are some deep lines around that mouth, which makes it feel like a mask. And then the shading under the bunny poof is deeply aggressive. <laughs> it is a very aggressive bunny poof. The bunny poof is glowing. <laughs> it's got a highlight. It's an anime girl bunny poof. It really is. So... And I feel like the last person wasn't sure what the bunny poof was. Yeah. <laughs> and just drew like an eldritch mass on his forehead. It's a symbolic cloud for astral dew. 
not for the first time. I'm very glad we don't write on these images, but they're still fun to look at. We did it once. We did once Once. before. Once where there was no St. Paul's outside the walls. I'm glad we're not writing on these. They're awful. They are awful. They are not even the same person. (laughs) No, no. They are all very similar to each other, but nothing like the first two images. I much, much prefer the man in the first two images, even when he looks deeply unimpressed. Someone was talking to him too long and his customer service face faltered. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it. That's when he's been told that the confirmation has arrived. It's just not for him. So that's what it is. Tempus Pontificus. September 29th, 855 to April 17th, 858. Three years and a score of 0.75. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. No. Not a lot of saints in this time period. No. No. We can't make him the patron saint of sponges and astral dew, though. (laughs) God, I feel like it's almost worth it to make him the patron saint of just astral dew and explain nothing. He's not a saint, so he doesn't even get to have astral dew, so. He gets astral dew in spirit. Yeah, that's that's exactly, that's what they would write about him. That's how flowery and weird it was. Unseen roots and all of that. Yeah. So that brings us to our total score for Pope Benedict III, which is a 16. Which is, you know... That's all right, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not super impressive. It puts him in 67th place, so middle of the pack. But that does not bode well when I ask you if he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull. I'm gonna go with no. I know. I feel bad about it because I feel like, again, he's waiting for confirmation and we are not delivering. I don't have any. I got no. none. We, we just don't have it. It's not, it's not right there. So that brings us to the end of our episode. And we have a bunch of patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. Because again, we were on hiatus. Then we were doing Pope Joan. We've been a little bit higgledy-piggledy about when we can record. So there are a lot of you. And thank you so much if you've been waiting to hear your name. We're absolving you now, so thank you to Eamon, Scott Wilkinson, Christina Moore Gotcher, Chrissy93, Ambry South, Quinn Campania, Travis Yonimura, Johnny Fake Name, Melanie R, <laughs> Amazing, Beth Baird, Dark Lady M, John Lawson, Joe Mayer, and Benjamin Rome Clark. Ego te absolvo. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist. Or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And with that, we can say thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.